I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this is Celebrity Celebrity Memoir Book Club. And just a little heads up, a little trigger warning, a little tread lightly if you please. Ashley, what should they expect in this podcast? You can expect thoughts, feelings, emotion, and a roller coaster through the pages of a book, not just a gentle stroll. Because can I tell you something about a gentle stroll? Mm -hmm. It's for the birds. Yeah, we're taking a monocle to these bitches and telling you what we really think by looking into the lines. Between them, if you will. So if you want a podcast that is just going to read you the memoir, that, my friends, is an audiobook. And if you want a podcast that is going to really dive in and give you thoughts, follow us on this journey. We will be thanking our five-star listeners at the end. And also, we always want to remind you guys, we just have the hottest merch out. We're obsessed with it. So check that out if you love us. Check that out if you love great design. It was designed by our favorite, Adrian. You can follow her on Instagram at Adrian Man Pearl, and it's linked in this description. But I also unironically wear my Worms Don't Rat sweatshirt almost every single day to the point where I'm like, Ashley, this is embarrassing to be wearing your own merch this often. You have to wear a different sweatshirt. Also, we had another incredible comedy show this week on Thursday at Nikki's Unisex in Williamsburg. They're every Thursday at 7 p.m. We have one left of the whole year before we take our little holiday hiatus, and then we'll be back and better than ever in January. So if you want to come, we are going to be doing an incredible new lineup on the 16th, Thursday, 7 p.m. That's going to end with an amazing Christmas party. We're going to be doing shots. Ashley will be doing shots. We'll all be dancing. We're going to have a great time. Maybe I'll bring cookies. Oh, I hope there's cookies. That being said, Ashley. Yeah, Claire? If you were a celebrity, what would last week's memoir chapter entail? I would call last week's memoir chapter the spirit. It moves me. Speaking of Christmas parties, you guys, I love Christmas and I feel like my love of Christmas heightens every single fucking year, especially living in New York. The way that Christmas is all around you, it is simply magical. The trees, the cheer, the decorations, the songs. Do not get me started on the playlists. If you guys want my Christmas playlist, I'll send it to you. But here's the thing. I know a lot of people love Christmas. It's not like unique to love Christmas, but my love of Christmas is more pure than anyone else's. Explain that. You guys know I'm Jewish. I was raised very Jewish. Whenever I say that, people are like, oh, but you had a Christmas tree, right? Wrong. We did not have a Christmas tree. We did not have Christmas presents. We weren't these Jews that were just like co-opting a holiday. We just kind of did the Jewish Chinese food and go to the movie theater on Christmas Day situation. And so my love of Christmas is about the happiness around me and not about presents. And that's what makes me better than everybody else. I honestly do think you have the purest love of Christmas. And when you gave me your explanation, I was like, I can't deny it. I can't argue it. You're the queen of Christmas. Thank you so much. Like Jesus himself. Jews know Christmas the best. I am Jesus. I've always said that. You're Jesus. Ooh, I like that name. Merry Christmas to one and all. And Claire, if you were to title your memoir last week, talk to me about it. You know, I had a hard day today. Oh, if I, as Gisette, could do one thing for you, it would be to pull you out of this funk. We're all getting older, right? Technically. And listen, a lot of people, they talk about the back pain. They talk about the hangovers. What they don't talk about is how I'm slowly becoming a boomer, I guess, (laughs) technology-wise. I have a younger boyfriend, and he has been truly laughing my face all day about what just happened to me. I am reeling coming off of a phone call I just got where I found out I had been scammed. (gasps) 
I don't know if anybody listening has ever been scammed by like an online person or like a fake company. It's humiliating. It's humiliating, but it's also sad because I want to believe in like the goodness of the world. Wait, the- you know what? I was just remembering that I did a TikTok a few months ago where I was like, I like that I get scammed because this is my second time getting scammed this year. I got scammed also by an energy company that stays outside and they're like, do you want to help the environment? And like an idiot, I go, yeah. And they like tripled my bill. And I had to be like, you told me it was free. It wasn't free. (laughs) Green energy, they're a scam. Nothing's free in this world. And in response to that, I had done a whole TikTok where I was like, I like that I get scammed a lot because it means I see the goodness in people and it means I'm hopeful and I'm just trying to be a good neighbor and help people out. And I had to remember that I said that today, walking over here being like, (laughs) I'm such a fucking idiot for being scammed. I was not only just scammed, I was scammed six weeks ago and I'm only finding out now. Explain. I guess I tried to pay my internet bill and it turns out I paid a fake company and I took a perusal at my credit card bill and I was like, oh, oh, okay. And they are feeling spendy. I guess it's Christmas at the scammer's house too. They pulled a little extra. (laughs) They've been pulling extras and I just found out about it today and it broke my heart. And the worst part is that I just spent like an hour and a half on the phone with Spectrum pleading with them. I was like, look, I'll pay you the bill, but I don't think it's fair that you charge me all of these like missed fees and payment bouncing fees. I thought I was doing the right thing. (laughs) I am not a faker. I was trying my best and I didn't know if it was up to me, I would have paid you on time. I thought I was. You were trying to pay. They wouldn't let you because these people on the internet had misplaced your trust the spectrum people are very nice they got the extra fees removed but at the end they were like yeah you just have to be careful when you're paying on the internet like you can't just like google spectrum pay and just trust the links that come up how dare you you are the internet okay (laughs) i was like i don't know maybe you guys should have a little control over your fucking seo you have a goddamn monopoly on internet in new york city you can't figure out how to make your google hits high they're like this is happening a lot we keep getting calls about this i'm like well call google or somebody like help us help you i don't want to be missing payments all of these internet websites are so confusing and it's like you are the internet make a better website I have to pay on the phone because I don't know how to get into my account via the web and the worst part was I kept being like well check your bank account history and see if they've been pulling money and I'm like well I can't right now because I don't have internet (laughs) and I got it back and they were helpful but I was just like god I feel like an idiot I can't believe I got scammed that's so embarrassing I've been scammed before I got scammed out of two thousand dollars once So you and I are two peas in a fucking idiot pod. (laughs) Okay, so let's get into this week's book. This week, we are doing Naya Rivera's book, Sorry Not Sorry. This is a book that a lot of people have asked for, and Claire and I were just not emotionally ready to tackle it, and now we've decided we might be, but it's to be determined. What happened to her was truly tragic. So for those of you who don't know, Naya Rivera passed away in a drowning accident and a lake where she was on a boat with her young son. I think... The ultimate report was that in an attempt to save her son from a whirlpool, she got sucked under and saved him. I remember when that story broke. I mean, I didn't ever dislike Naya Rivera, but I never was like a stan. It really struck me. It felt like truly tragic in a way that... It just is devastating. So we tried to read... I tried to read this book as a piece of writing. Yeah about her life, but it is really hard to separate it from the fact that she has since passed away. There's like a lot in this book that becomes a lot more tragic knowing what happened. So we are going to get into it. We're going to get into it. We're doing our best. Bear with us. Obviously, it's a very sensitive subject. We want to give it the real CNBC read and a fair look, but also we're going to be aware that it is sad. And the other part of the balance is that this is a fun book overall. Like it is saucy. It is entertaining. She like spills tea and gives us a really interesting look at her life. There's a lot to get into. We're going to try and do it justice because I feel like she deserves it, but we will tread lightly in the light of a tragedy. 
Naya Rivera was born January 12th, 1987, and then tragically passed July 8th, 2020. This book came out in 2016 when she was 29 years old. She had just gotten married and just had her baby Josie. So normally I would say too soon, but I mean, I guess I'm glad she got this out. One of the big lessons of this book that she tries to teach is write your own book. She's like, everyone should write a book. Everyone should journal. Everyone should write down the things that have happened to them and then connect the pattern because it helps you bring meaning. I do agree with that premise of write down the stories of your life and see where you can find patterns. I think in terms of everyone should write a book. Agree to disagree. <laughs> she says that the point of this book and the preface is that your life doesn't have to be perfect for you to be proud. In fact, I think it's the opposite. The more imperfect your life has been, the prouder you should be because it means you've come that much further and also probably had a lot more fun along the way. And with that, I hope you have as much fun reading this book as I had writing it. So that I agree with. I like that as the message for a book. Mm-hmm. The weird thing she does in this book, which is called Sorry Not Sorry, is at the end of every chapter, she writes a little listicle where she says which parts she's sorry for and which parts she's not sorry for. So she kind of goes through the main mistakes and significant moments of the chapter. And it's like, this happened, whatever. And this, my bad. Sometimes it works. Sometimes I do feel that to reduce things to a sorry versus sorry, not sorry list felt unnuanced. I liked this book a lot. I did think that the commitment to the theme of the title, Sorry, Not Sorry, was a big mistake, including this dedication page. She has a quote from Maya Angelou. Wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. And then she asterisks it and says, because a wise woman basically once said, sorry, not sorry. And I was like, "Eh, I think actually Maya Angelou probably said it better. So let's just leave her quotes as her quotes. Maybe you should have made the title, wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. Then at the end of every chapter, you could have said what I would have taken for my journey, but what I would not have taken. Yeah. Naira Rivera was born to two parents, as many of us are. Yes, except for Kyle XY. Her father, George, and her mother, Yolanda. Yolanda never once goes by yo. They had met in Milwaukee while George was visiting his brother there. Yolanda was a beautiful young model. She was 18, 19 years old. And nearly six feet tall, which I think is a very important personality trait. When she decided to move to LA and pursue her modeling dreams there with George, she got unexpectedly pregnant at 20 years old and... That is where we get the beautiful Naya Rivera. Her mom did have to put all of her acting hopes and dreams on hold and never resumed them. But what she did do is resume them through Naya. Naya had an agent right out the womb. Once I was born, mom kept it moving and didn't miss a beat. She got me an agent before I could walk. And my grand entrance into life into the public eye was a topless scene. At seven months old, I was cast in a Kmart commercial to crawl across the floor wearing nothing but a diaper. Later, she says, My dad had a full-time job working in IT, which gave my mom the opportunity to devote herself full-time to my career. And she founded a company called One Plus One Management. She was my manager, and I was her only client. She loves acting. She loves acting, modeling, showbiz, etc. But she never tries to pass it off as her own idea. I think because she started so young, it would have been impossible to even pretend. The very first sentence of the book is, From the time I was in utero, it was my fate to be in front of the camera. I guess she doesn't say it was her idea. I guess she says it was her fate as destined by her mom who had her own dreams dashed. She loved it. And it's hard to tell, though, if she loved it because she loved it or because of the approval that came along with it. And I'm willing to guess it was the approval that came along with it. She was, from the time she was a baby, an incredibly intense little girl. She wrote, I never once complained about having to get out of bed so early because secretly I knew that if I was up before the sun, I must be important. She casted a ton of things. She was so adorable. I mean, she was an incredibly cute little girl. We'll put up photos on the Instagram. And she took it extremely seriously. She was getting cast regularly. And this had notes of Jodie Sweeten in it. I shot this scene with 102 degree fever, not because anyone told me I had to, but because I insisted. And even though I was burning up, I nailed it. 
She was very proud of the fact that she wasn't like other little girls who were lazy dumbasses. And went to schools. She did have some really intense experiences early on. Her first major role was in a sitcom called The Royal Family starring Red Fox. And this show was kind of queued up to be a huge deal. She played the little girl. Red Fox played her grandpa. And while they were rehearsing a scene, he keeled over and died while running lines with her. She says, I didn't move. I'd been taught to stay on my mark and that's what I did. My dad happened to be on set that day. Finally, he noticed that I was still standing there like a statue. So he ran over and scooped me up. The whole cast went to the hospital where they found out that Red didn't make it through. And then they tried to make the show continue and it straight up didn't work. So it got canceled after that first season and that was the last of her big roles. And things just sort of went downhill from there. She continued to try and audition for things. And I'm sure she got little bits and pieces. She was in an episode of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. She was in a couple episodes of Family Matters. But mostly that was the height. And she did not reach those heights again until she would get in Glee. I mean, her career came to almost a complete standstill a few years later around middle school, high school. She talks about the ways that being a little baby star separated her from the other kids. And I feel like she kind of waffles back and forth to how significantly it affected her. Like a few times she alludes to the fact that she was an absolute monster. And a couple times she's just like, I don't know. I didn't think I was that different from any of the other kids. I just had to leave to go to work sometimes. At the end of the day, I think because she became very successful, she's very glad that she didn't make it early on. She has a pretty good paragraph about what being a child actor does to you. If I had been a successful kid actor, I'd probably be way more crazy than I am now and doing fucked up things with those residual checks. I think it's hard for child actors to make the transition to adulthood because they have everything they want at such an early age. You get tons of attention and people are always telling you how great you are, not to mention all the material perks. Even though you're a little kid, people turn you into the boss. This happens especially when the kid becomes the breadwinner in the family. And I think that this is hard for the kids and the parents. How are you going to discipline a kid when they're the one making all the money? Also, when you're a super successful little kid, you're not mentally developed enough to understand that things could change at any time. You just think that your life is always going to be this cool. And then all of a sudden, you hit that awkward stage in life and your roles start to dry up and you're back to being a normal kid, even though you're totally unprepared for normalcy. So she says she feels grateful that she didn't peak. And I think it's an interesting perspective because, of course, she's writing this book from the other side of Glee where she became a huge star. But during her experience as a child, after the royal family... She did have that feeling of being a failure. I mean, she talks about later in high school. This is jumping forward a little bit. I felt anxious all the time. I missed working in the sense of routine and purpose that came with it. I also just straight up loved acting. Although part of me knew that the reasons I wasn't getting roles were out of my control, a bigger part of me took it as a sign that there was something wrong with me. I felt lost and didn't know what to do with myself. I went into high school feeling like a loser has been. So there was a lot that hit the fan when she went to high school. Not only was she not acting anymore and she was completely losing control of that side of her life. Her parents also had a really tumultuous relationship and financially were really not doing well at this point. So they had been not very well off when she was super young. And then her dad hit it big with a really great steady job, bought them a nice suburban house and then lost that job. And they were no longer able to afford really anything. She says that he had to file for bankruptcy twice, which is interesting because it's in the same sentence where she's like, he had great credit. He had a lot of financial acumen. He did file for bankruptcy twice. But I mean, she tells stories about when he got a good steady job. They bought this house in the suburbs and he threw her a 13th birthday party that included like a fake snow machine. They had turned <laughs> the pool into a dance floor. Truly an elaborate birthday party that I guess they couldn't afford at all. As a result of the financial instability in her family, her parents were fighting constantly. She also had to tap into her own accounts 
most of her money from child acting was locked up in something called a Coogan account, which is a law that was passed where 15% of a child actor's salary has to go into a special account that they can't access until they're 18 years old. I get that some went to an agent, but that means a good chunk of it had been burned through by the parents. And she was also having to go to court for her parents and request early access to her Coogan account so that they could pay some of their bills. So she was no longer making any money. All the money that she had made was being burned through by her family. She was lost emotionally as well, aside from like the actual shit going on. And so she became deeply anorexic. And she's like, I just had this loss of control. So I stopped eating. She said that the other girls were perpetually on a diet. And she said, well, you know how you can lose weight. Just stop eating. Okay. So trigger warning, eating disorders. First of all, no one was noticing for a long time. Her parents, it seems like, had a lot of shit going on. They were struggling financially. They were struggling in their marriage. She also had two younger siblings who were five and eight years younger than her, who very rarely come up in this book. It doesn't sound like she's close to them at all, but I think that her parents had their hands full with those two kids. So she was just figuring out ways to not eat and have it go unnoticed. And finally, she had to ask for help. She has this experience where she says she was so hungry that she was shaking and she decided she was just going to eat an apple. And then she just stared at the apple and couldn't make herself eat it. And she said, that's when I realized this game I was playing had gone too far and I thought I lost control. So she goes to her mom and tells her that she's anorexic. Her mom says, quote, Naya, this is some white people shit. She forgives her mom now, but she's like, they just didn't have the tools to help me. They didn't know anybody who had ever had this problem before. And they just fundamentally didn't understand it. And it got out of control to the point where a few times at school, she passed out and had to be taken to the hospital. And her dad would come and he would just be like, please, can you just stop? And they did eventually even take her to therapy. And she said the therapist didn't help her at all. They would just say, why are you doing this? And she's like, I feel like I need control in my life. And they were like, okay. And then she'd be like, okay. And nobody would go any further. At one point they put her on antidepressants and she says that she knew in her heart that she wasn't depressed. That wasn't the problem. The problem was I fell out of control in my life. And she knew that even 15 year old Naya knew that the problem was that between her parents fighting all the time, she said that often she would have to take her two siblings to the park to get them out of the house because it was so volatile and the financial problems of them moving constantly and switching high schools. And then also feeling like a failure because she was no longer acting. She just needed control over something. And nobody really knew what a second step to take would be to help her. She says eventually she just stopped. She says, which I think is interesting, another part of her problems in school was they switched schools a lot. And as a mixed race girl, she never felt like she fit in anywhere. She said the schools were highly segregated. And she was, of course, too black for the white girls, too white for the black girls. She was too black to be Hispanic. She's half Puerto Rican because both of her parents are half Puerto Rican. And then her mom is half Puerto Rican, half black. Her dad is half Puerto Rican, half German. And so finally she moves to a school where she becomes friends with the black kids and they embrace curves. And so she's like, oh, okay. This was the end of my sophomore year of high school. I became friends with a group of black girls at school who, unlike the white girls I knew who considered slim fast bars to be a meal, had no desire to be skin and bones. They preached to me about how guys like thick girls with asses and curves. So she just started eating again. I mean, good for her. It is an interesting story in terms of her anorexia was so severe. And then she just changed her mind. It really shows you her intensity. Like when she committed to anorexia, she committed yeah. to it. As soon as she had something else to focus on, she did. She is a very intense person. I thought that her story about her struggle with eating disorders was really important because I do think it often becomes like a racially divided situation where people assume it's only white girls who struggle with eating disorders. Yeah. And I do think that her story of People in her community not knowing how to deal with it is a common one. People of all races can hate themselves in a white way. She has a really beautiful chapter about it towards the end. So she really returns to the racial beauty standard conversation. She talks a lot about being the other and specifically 
going to auditions as a little girl, they were like, what's your race? And she wasn't black. She wasn't white. And her mom would always say other, you need to know what you are because people are always going to be asking you. And it always made her feel different. And it was a struggle. I think that drove her kind of obsessive need to be popular because she didn't feel like she fit in any group in high school. She says that all of her high schools were hyper segregated. Let me just read this one section about beauty standards in general, which I think she writes really well. Deep down, most of us have been conditioned to try to blend, pass, or fit in. White people are always trying to tell ethnic women what they should and shouldn't do with their hair. Here's how you tame those unmanageable curls. Or here are professional hairstyles, aka styles that look the most white. Even if there were a couple ethnic cabbage patch kids, most other girls grew up being constantly exposed to blonde-haired, blue-eyed women as the ideal of beauty. We know we can never look like that, so eventually we start to interpret that to mean that we can never be beautiful either. And I think that that's a story that I've heard from a lot of friends that I've had, and I think that that's why we've seen it be so important that there are more diverse beauty standards now. But she talks a lot in this chapter about how even though there's a lot more diversity on television, it's a lot more specific to proving that there's diversity on television. And that's the main point that she's trying to prove here is she says that she was given a script for a black character and the character was so distinctly black and she was like, I can't play this role. I'm a quarter black and this just isn't who I am at all. And it doesn't feel right for me to be this person. And the producers were like, I don't know if you're at all black, you can just do it. And she was like, that's not the point that I'm trying to fucking prove. I just want to play a character. I don't want to play a character who is shoehorned in there for the sake of diversity. I think she does a good job of writing about how it does suck that they can't just like cast characters. Right. Fully dimensional people. Another important thing from these middle school, high school years is her on and off middle school, high school boyfriend was Taj Maori of Smart Guy. There's not a lot that goes on here. I just think it's one of those nostalgic trips that you're like, holy shit, Taj Maori. She lives in that universe where she has like one foot in, one foot out. And so she had met Taj Maori because she was on Family Matters. And as child actors, the moms had become friends. And when she was 13 years old, she was always vying to become popular. And she was very methodical about how she wanted to become the most popular girl in school. So one year she was like, I'm going to tell everybody Taj is coming to my birthday party. And he did, in fact, go. And she has this funny story about watching all the girls be so pathetic, trying to play basketball with him. And then they ultimately broke up when she was 18. Because he wants someone who's more financially on his level, which is interesting because I literally have no idea what he's doing now. That's why he knew he needed somebody who was on his level then because he's like, this ship is going down. I'm no longer the smart guy. (laughs) (laughs) But I actually want to get even more into her obsession with being popular in high school because she is... One of the more driven people we've met, I think, in book. And I want you to read some of the lists you're at. She probably has OCD. I think her drive is, some could say, unhealthy. She would come home and write lists of everything to distract herself from the fact that she was starving to death. And they were all lists about how to work towards being the most popular girl in school. And some of them are, if you take away the sadness, so truly funny. (laughs) She writes this one list called Things to Do or Buy. Do you want to read some of your favorite highlights from Things to Do or Buy? Pay taxes, get ears pierced, get new jeans, figure out God stuff, take the SATs, get into good college, finally get a record deal, get a PR person to promote me as a hot, sexy, rich party hopper, take back miniskirt, get some more money, finish reading mind book, get some type of shimmer bronze powder for face for sexy summer look, get $71 back from dad. (laughs) And these are just a few out of the 29 things, including one of them is get a boyfriend who fits the list and her list of what men need to date her has 32 points on it. 27, file unemployment claim. 28, continue to be spontaneous and everything will work out. Love that for her. So this is the kind of stress she was putting herself under. And on top of that, she was 
in part supporting her family financially. She says because she had been a working actress, she was able to file for unemployment when things weren't coming through. And that unemployment check went to her family. She was dipping into the Coogan account on multiple occasions to pay for things they couldn't cover. She was extremely stressed and feeling like a failure. I mean, it makes sense that she would turn to an eating disorder. I think that a lot of people in chaos try to control their bodies. But even if everything had been going perfect, I think Naya Rivera was born a deeply intense eyes on the prize person. Yes. And it just is sad that at this point in her life, the only prize she could set her eyes on was thinness. As mentioned, she was not on Smart Guy's financial level because acting had ground to a complete halt. She was getting auditions quite regularly for a while, and then she just wasn't landing anything. Puberty is a really hard time, I think, for child actors because they go from being the cute little kids, but then they're not like sexy enough to be teens. And I think they would rather have a young-looking 16-year-old play 12. They'd rather have like a young-looking 16-year-old But especially for high school students, they want an 18-year-old to play a high school student because of labor laws. So she was just in an awkward phase. I think it wasn't probably her cutest times. We've all been in puberty. It's not cute. It's not your best. And it really got to her, but she stuck with it. At one point, she even convinced her parents to let her be homeschooled for her junior year. And she said it took so long for the paperwork to go through that by the time she was able to be homeschooled, she didn't want to do it anymore. She's like, I hate acting. I miss my friends. And she says she just sat at home and watched TV all day for a few months. She pretty much stopped acting after she blew up at a Disney audition. She auditioned for a lot of Disney parts. She was almost Vanessa Hudgens' character in High School Musical. She was almost a cheetah girl. There were a lot of almosts. And then one day at an audition, I sang my ass off and had all the casting directors smiling and clapping. You just do so great every time you're in here, one of them told me. I'd heard it all before. And though I'm sure you can't imagine me ever saying anything inappropriate, right? I blurted out, oh yeah, then how come you never cast me for anything? The whole room went silent. And she basically said to her mom, I don't care what they're casting in there. I'm never coming back. She was just sick of the shit, sick of the runaround. And she never did. As we know to this day, we never saw her in a Disney thing. After the acting dreams died when she was in high school, she then even went on to try to pursue music. And she had some interesting experiences. She worked with Dark Child in Atlanta. Her dad was more into the music stuff and he would use any connection he had ever made to try to get her into a studio. She tried to put in an album. She tried to be a songwriter. It seems like none of that went anywhere, but she did get to be a backup dancer in a B2K video. And that brought back a lot of nostalgia for me because that song, Bump, 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 it was the album of my fourth grade year. As we mentioned, her parents were having some financial and emotional difficulties, and it ended with them finally hitting the divorce button. When she was 17 years old, they officially split. Her dad moved out and her and her brother moved in with the dad while her younger sister stayed with the mom. This she doesn't really dive into at all. And I know she stayed very close with her mom. I feel like it might have just been for the vibe. She was like a teenager and she was sick of her mom. She has an interesting relationship with her mom. And as you said, by the end of the book, they are thick as thieves. They're best friends. Her high school years is typical, I think, of most high school girls. They fought a lot. But in this book, adult Naya Rivera says about her mom, specifically in regards to her struggle with anorexia, that she wasn't able to be there for her the way she needed to be because she doesn't have any empathy. And that's a direct quote. And I was just like, whoa. One, that is such a crazy thing to say about your mom. And two, what kind of family do you come from where you can stay best friends with a person that you publicly say has no empathy? Like, I'm just curious about her mom's personal values that if somebody was like, you know you, you have no ability to feel for anybody else. And she was like, that's true. I don't. (laughs) And I wouldn't wish it on anybody (laughs) if I ever stopped to think about them. So at the end of high school, she graduates by like the skin of her teeth. Well, before she graduates high school, she turns 18 years old. She gets access to her Coogan account and she decides to treat herself to the cans of her dreams. 
This is a big moment for her. As that day is getting closer, she knows the exact thing that she is going to spend her money on. She's going to get access to $42,000 and she plans to spend $8,000 of it on boobs. She schedules the consultation before she even turns 18 so that when she turns 18, she can celebrate her birthday with tits. She is taking a couple days off school to go get boobs and she is proudly walking around to all of her teachers being like, I won't be here because I'm having surgery. I'll see you guys next week. I need all my assignments. Her art teacher was stoked though when I told her. She said that she too has fake tits and that she was excited for me. I can't wait to see how they look when you come back, she said. That's insane. (laughs) Her parents weren't super on board, but eventually her mom came to terms with it when it looked good. And she writes, accepting your body is a lot easier said than done, which is why I think you got to do what you got to do to make yourself feel good. People have a lot of opinions about plastic surgery, but more than 10 years after I got my boobs, they still make me happy when I look in the mirror. It might have been the best 8K I've ever spent. I think that the way beauty standards have been set by society is extremely toxic. And I think that if you're getting plastic surgery to fit a certain mold, to look like a Kardashian, to look like a certain actress, I think that's really dangerous. And if you think that you'll like be a better person if you look a certain way. That's really dangerous. But I think if you look at yourself in the mirror and you see something that you just want to fix to make yourself happier, I don't think that that's a problem. Would it be great to live in a society where people didn't feel the need to get elective surgery to be hotter? Yeah. Would it be great to live in a society where looking hotter didn't make people feel better about themselves? Yeah. But maybe we start later because it's too late for the rest of us, bitches. (laughs) So after high school, things take a bit of a dip. She is working at Abercrombie with her best pal. She kind of has no real plans because she's still loosely pursuing acting. And then after Abercrombie, her friend finds a cool telemarketing job where they'd make more money. So they quit Abercrombie to go work at this telemarketing company. So she's basically selling timeshares at a golf course. That doesn't exist yet. And never did exist. So after a few months of making a ton of cash on commissions, they find out that it's just like a whole ass scam and the company goes under. And while she'd been working at this timeshare company, she decides it's time to move out of her dad's house. So she gets an apartment furnishes the whole thing irresponsibly and can no longer afford it after six months. She is going so far into debt. Everything her dad taught her about maintaining good credit went so far out the window. So then she has to pack up her things and move back into her dad's house, re-get a job at Abercrombie where she lies fully on her resume to be like, I graduated college when I was 18 years old and I'm allowed to be a manager here. She scams her way into a manager position by saying she was like a fashion merchandising degree. (laughs) She's like, I was a child actress. I graduated when I was 14. (laughs) So after Abercrombie fires her, not even for lying, for ringing up her own merchandise, which I guess you're just like not allowed to do. She ends up getting a job at Hooters, which she thinks will help her make more money because she has like a fuck ton of credit card bills to pay off. Plus she's paying rent to her dad. Hooters turns out to be a real wild year or so for her. She tries to dye her hair blonde. She meets a waitress named Angie, who I think is like an interesting character study and types of psychos that you meet in LA. Angie had been a pageant girl from Texas. Her and her mom moved out to LA to try to see if they could make Angie famous. Angie's mom like taught her how to do her own extensions by just gluing fake hair to your head using (laughs) Gorilla Glue and teasing it. Angie had fake boobs. Angie also had lip fillers. She had gotten lip fillers as a teen and then gone to like Jerry Springer to be like, yep, my teenage daughter has plastic surgery and I like it. That's the kind of people she was hanging out with. Angie was also a big sugar daddy type of girl and she convinced Naya Rivera that that was a good idea. Naya said that she accepted some money from men 
And then when it got to the point where they expected anything in return, she like had her dad call them and threaten the men. I think actually one of the men who started stalking her was the breaking point for her personally, where she's like, I have to quit Hooters. I have to get out of here. I have to turn my life around. It is sad that it got to that point. But man, that was a crazy couple of years. She also talks <laughs> about this point about her hoe years and how she's like, everybody should have some whore years because you got to get it out of your system before you... And this I was on board with. I don't agree with her putting herself in dangerous situations with like creepy dudes from Hooters. But she does talk about having a crush on one guy and not knowing how to go about it. So she would date their friends and like sleep with their friends and then wait for word to get back to them that she was hot or something. And it kind of worked. I don't think you can be successfully married until you've had at least three good years of playing the field. I'm not kidding. It teaches you what's out there. This is something that I preach enormously. I will say it is damning that Naya ended up divorced. (laughs) Two years after this book came out, but... So after this year of slutting around town like a champ and working at Hooters, getting herself into some dangerous situations, completely bankrupting herself, where she was literally committing fraud at one point. She figured out that if you submit an empty check to the ATM, it'll send you the money before the check has officially cleared. And so she was just doing this. And she's like, but did you know that the bank will catch on? And I was like, I did not know for sure, but I would have guessed. I would have guessed. I think that if there's one thing banks like, it's keeping their money. Banks love money. It's so tacky. It really is. They're so embarrassing about it. Playa, cool. You seem very nouveau riche. Do you know the other thing that sucks about banks? What? Is that like the design is always quite tacky. Like you walk into a bank and you're just like, can you guys act like you have money? It's literally all here. Carpet? Okay. <laughs> After these couple years, she decides it's time to like really focus up and get her life on track. As we've mentioned, when she puts her mind to something, she's actually so smart and good at stuff. So she starts going to community college. She starts taking classes and she gets involved in a screenwriting program. And she decides that that might be the direction she wants to take. So she gets into a program in New York, a three-month screenwriting program. And her parents help her foot the bill. She goes out to New York and spends a summer there where she's just working hard, writing stuff. She writes a very funny comedy. It sounded funny. And she's like, maybe I'll become a screenplay writer. I can't hack it in front of the camera, but maybe I'll end up behind the camera. So she calls her mom and she's like, acting sucks. I'm a writer now. I'm never acting again. And her mom is like, just give it six more months. We worked so hard at this for so long. Do six more months. And she was like, I hated auditions so much. And agreeing to do those six months was a deeply taxing thing for me. And her mom said, listen, I know you're picky. Just go to everything and see what sticks. And so she goes, fine, I'll give you six months. And right away, she gets booked for CSI. Yeah, she does an episode of CSI Miami. She's like, I could never get CSI because no one would believe that me, someone so beautiful, could be on heroin and dead. And then I guess CSI was like, we could believe it. So she gets booked and she feels so good. The minute she's back on set, she's like, this is where I belong. I love the shitty sandwiches. I love floor covered and dangerous wires. And as she gets off, she says, the script coordinator is like, hey, you're really good. You're going to do great in this industry. And she's like, that's all I needed. I needed one compliment. And sure enough, when she's in her trailer on CSI Miami, she gets a call from her agent. She just booked the show. It's called Glee. You guys, have you ever heard of it? It was pretty big for a couple of years. So she did two auditions after she promised her mom she would stop being picky about auditions. And they were CSI Miami and Glee. She says she cared so little about the Glee audition because she didn't understand at all what the show was that she smoked a cigarette right before a singing audition. So she gets to the Glee set day one and she's like, how come there's so many nip tuck posters here? And they're like, 
it's Ryan Murphy's office. This is his show. And that's when she was like, okay, very cool. She was a huge Nip Talk fan. And so when she was first booked, Santana had no lines. She was just the sidekick. In the pilot, she is just standing behind Diana Agron's character and making sassy faces. So she's like, if my job is to make sassy faces, I am going to break my neck sassing my fucking face off. And it pays off because the character, as we knew, grew into a literal icon. So it does get picked up, obviously. We all know Glee exists. It was hard to remember that Glee was such an iconic moment in time because it's since been thrashed so fucking hard on TikTok. And I think that that's largely a Will Schuster situation. There's a lot of cringeness about it. I'm going to go back to my original thesis. I think I have one overall premise about media that has come out of this podcast. And that is edgy humor is by definition topical. If you are trying to push the boundaries of what is acceptable and funny and okay for TV in that day and age, it is going to age poorly because that can only exist within society. Right. You've said it before. Edgy humor is at the edge of what's acceptable and the edge moves. So now you're no longer standing on the edge. And then five years later, everybody's like, why are you making such a big deal over like a gay person? Yeah. And it was a huge fucking deal to have all these gay teens on TV at that time. She says, for a lot of people, I think Glee was the first show that made it possible for them to turn on the TV and see someone who looked like them or who was dealing with the same kinds of issues they were dealing with. Plus, we weren't just a bunch of actors playing a band of misfits on TV. We were actually a band of misfits and we were inseparable. When I read that, I was like, could that be true? Did Glee represent any unvoiced person? I think they might have. It's just... They did. It's so hard to look back and remember. That show was about the school outcasts versus the cheerleaders trying to like infest the outcast club. And it was a huge conflict. It really did represent a lot of unspoken high school experiences that I think people were really happy to see on TV. Plus, I mean, some people do love singing, not me, but. (laughs) (laughs) And those people are freaks and they should have never been represented. One of the low key, most toxic things that happened because of Glee was when all of a sudden everyone was like, Gwyneth Paltrow was a great singer. (laughs) She did a couple episodes and like people lost their fucking minds. And I was like, she's singing fine. She almost got a record deal after that. Anyway, they immediately become thick as thieves. The whole cast parties together. They spend literally all of their time together. She implies that they all hooked up. When she's talking about Corey Monteith, who was her very close friend, and says, minus the one incident of kissing, Corey and I had a very brotherly, sisterly relationship, which is rare in a cast that had the sex drive of bunnies and the bed-hopping skills of a polygamist cult. So she doesn't elaborate on most of these relationships, but I'm pretty sure the whole cast boinked. She also says something that I do think is very astute. She says, because the show had no established actors and no famous people, that is part of why the show arose and why they were allowed to gel as much as they did. And of course, we know that there is word of the Naya Rivera, Leah Michelle feud. And I do think everybody hates Leah Michelle. But I think that at the beginning, there was hope she could have gelled. But as this show got bigger and bigger, she saw herself as the star and allowed that to go straight to her head because by the end, nobody liked Leah. But at the beginning, she says Leah participated here and there and would come to the love nest. Jenna Ushkowitz and Kevin McHale got a house and they would all hang out there all the time. Even Leah came and like had a drink once. <laughs> she said we were all super involved in one another's lives, sometimes maybe a little too much. We even got Leah up to the love nest and Leah does not go out. She wanted to let her hair down. So she drank two hot toddies while she was there. The rest of us were slamming champagne and vodka and Leah's in the kitchen making tea. 
So I think that that just kind of set her apart from the rest of the cast that she couldn't fucking rage because they had fun. They would always do like a group Halloween costume and like rent a party bus so no one had to drunk drive and they would go batshit. She says that they would do an insane Christmas party. It was called Snicksmas because Snix was her drunken alter ego. And just so you guys know, they still do a Snicksmas Christmas charity drive that you can donate to. And it made me sad. She talks about Diana Agaron and she says Diana was born fancy. She's like Madonna. One day she'd show up with a British accent and you wouldn't even question it because hello, it's Diana. You have to be so cool and beloved to be the kind of person who shows up with a British accent sometimes and people are cool with that about you. I don't think that anyone on this earth exists quite as elegantly as Diana Agron. There is something about her. I remember the Say a Little Prayer dance, the way she dances. You're just like, how is she pulling this off? It's ridiculous. She's like white Jessica Alba. Yes. There's something about the proportions and symmetry of her face where you're like, there's nothing exceptional here, but you nailed it. (laughs) You nailed pretty. She is as humanly pretty as you can be. And somehow in a way that's not like boring or overdone. You're just like, wow, you are just pretty to look at. She's so pretty. I get what Taylor Swift sees in her. So they had this deeply codependent, they were always around each other relationship. And then her and Leah, she talks about it a lot later in the book, but they stopped gelling as soon as Naya Rivera's character became important in the show. She says we were like two sides of the same battery. We were both very competitive. We both took our work very seriously. And we both have big personalities. I don't think that they're two sides of the same battery. I think they have a lot in common. And I think that Naya is fun. I also think that there is a difference between being like a team captain and the high scorer. And I think when Naya talks about being hard on people on set, wanting people to show up on time, hit their marks, know their lines, getting frustrated, I do think that Naya wanted the show to be the best it was and was okay to have a smaller part. Whereas Leah was like, I came in as the star and I want to be the biggest star of the show. And those are two very different values. The cast was obviously shaken by a tragedy that we all know about. Naya was really close with Corey Monteith. And she talks about how they all knew he was sober. He'd been very open about his previous addiction issues. But I think he'd been a lot more open about the drinking issues. And they kind of assumed he was an alcoholic. And she says that they had forgotten about the drug problems. I'd always thought of Corey as a recovering alcoholic and completely forgot that he had also had a heroin problem. I guess he hit it well. I thought of heroin as a problem that was relegated to strung out junkies who lived on the street. Not my sweet, smart, talented friend who had plenty of money. He always knew his lines and choreography and was wide awake. Heroin was the opposite of awake. So I actually think that this is really interesting and common and deeply untrue. The way people think that being on hard drugs makes you like a strung out junkie hiding in the corner. There are a lot of very functional drug addicts. And I think that's what catches people so off guard all the time. Also, I do think there's like a stigma around certain hard drugs that you're like, oh, this person doesn't do crack. This person doesn't do meth. They have too much money. Like you look at Jodie Sweetin and nobody would have believed that Jodie Sweetin, the girl from Full House, was doing meth. I think in recent years with the opioid epidemic and the press coverage has gotten, people are starting to slowly come around to the fact that heroin is in the suburbs. Heroin infects a lot of people and it affects people from all walks of life. I do think it's very honest that she's like, I never thought that my rich, handsome, smart friend could do heroin. And it's like, it could happen to anybody. And I think that that's like a helpful mindset to cop to. I'm glad that she admits that because I think that a lot of people feel that way. I think I probably would have felt that way before I knew a lot of heroin addicts. I I myself, even hearing about the Corey Montieth death, was like, how could he have been with Leah Michelle? How could Leah have not known? How could she have not realized? Especially because Leah is such a clean cut non-partier. 
And I do think her non-partying is like a type A performance situation. I don't think it's an aversion to drugs and alcohol. I don't do that kind of stuff because I have to study for the performance tomorrow. Exactly. You guys don't know the burden of being a star, but I have responsibilities to an entire production. I have to carry this show tomorrow. She talks about the beginning of his relapse. They all saw him start drinking, which this is another situation that I think people forget about. They forget that alcoholism is a disease. It is not someone who just was out of control in their youth and can turn it off. He basically used the excuse that I think a lot of alcoholics turn to when they decide to start drinking again, which is telling them, I'm going to relearn how to drink in moderation. You don't have to worry about me. So they didn't worry about him. And she, I think, has a lot of guilt, which makes me really sad because it's obviously not her fault at all. And that just makes me really sad the way she looks at a lot of conversations they had and watching him take a couple drinks and thinks that she could have prevented it. She like, Could not have. But she talks about hearing that he died. She was in London. She was dating Big Sean at the time. And Big Sean was fucking worthless. He didn't even get out of bed. She found out her good friend died. And he was like, oh, my God, let's talk about this in the morning. She also talks about the episode that commemorated his death on Glee. Obviously, they had to acknowledge it on the show. But it just feels so cruel almost to force these people to sing about their fake dead friend who was actually their real dead friend. She says that she became the kind of de facto leader since Leah Michelle was in no shape to perform that episode. Her obviously. literal boyfriend died of a drug overdose. And they're like, all right, what are you equipped to sing in this show? And she says, Mike O'Malley wrote me a very sweet note telling me how he felt that people looked up to me on set and that I needed to be extra strong to help pull everyone else through it. That was really comforting. And I tried, Mike. I tried. Okay, can I say? That's so manipulative and psycho. I felt like that was a really fucked up thing. Mike O'Malley said, who here can I manipulate and trick by telling them that they're like tough? And he picked the right mark. Mike O'Malley, if you're listening to this, I hope you lose sleep over what you've done. To be like, hey, I know that your good friend just died, but don't cry because everyone's going to be wondering if they can get through the episode and you have to make sure that we make our ad revenue. Ugh. She also says that everybody was shocked when Corey and Leah came out as a couple. She says it was so high school. And reading this chapter really brought you into that high school experience. And I could feel it. And she talks about even as early as the pilot. She says her and Diana Agron felt kind of excluded because when they showed up, the other kids who were in the chorus had already been there weeks practicing choreography and getting to know each other. So she's like, me and the other Cheerios, the cheerleaders from the show already had this weird dynamic where we were on the outside looking in wanting to be a part of the fun they were having but feeling like others and I think a lot of the dynamic of the show mimicked what was happening I mean the Rachel Berry and Santana Lopez dynamic exactly mirrors how Leah Michelle in real life could not handle the threat of Naya Rivera's star rising and it ended their friendship it like turned them against each other she also talks about like when new cast members got added the way they were shoved into a pool of sharks who were all just trying to fuck them of course She did have a boyfriend. She may have fucked a lot of them, but there was one specifically that she dated for a while. Mark Sailing, who we know has since passed away also. Death by suicide after being convicted and sentenced to five years in jail because they found 50,000 counts of child pornography on his computer. She really glosses over the child porn situation. Okay, so she talks about their relationship. She doesn't go easy on him, but she goes hard on him in terms of the fact that he was like a fucking terrible boyfriend who cheated on her all the time and like was an asshole and not hard on the fact that he was later convicted of child porn. She just keeps being like, I'd never guess what he'd go on to do. Google it. (laughs) I'm like, I'm not going to Google it. I'm not going to go to jail. I'm not going down for this shit. (laughs) 
I mean, he was a shitty boyfriend. She talks about their very first date where he would get high and take her to drive throughs and he just sucked overall. And then he cheated on her a lot. And after she found out for sure that he was cheating on her, she like covered his car in birdseed and like eggs. Mark and I went on to date for three years. During that time, we were very much either on or very much off. But he was my first real boyfriend. Woof. When things were good, they were great. He was from Texas, and I went home with him twice. We stayed at his family's Creekside cabin. He'd play the guitar, and we'd lay in the sun and write songs and go fishing. They also had a weird power dynamic where I think when he called her for their first date, she was still nannying because even though she had landed glee, she didn't know how long that would last, and she had so much debt that even a TV check wasn't going to get her out of it. And he became much more famous before she did because he had a main role, and she was still a background actor until season two. And so I do think that that created part of the power dynamic of their relationship was that she was just like lucky to be with him. But then, of course, as her star rose too, things evened out. And she does talk about how a lot of their relationship was just being addicted to the drama. It sounds so high school. I guess she didn't have a normal high school experience because she changed school so much. And I guess all of them probably had a weird high school experience because if you're in something with him, you're 22, you've probably been auditioning for years. I mean, it was literally college for the first couple of years. Yeah, it was like dorm life. So she finishes up this Mark Selling part where she goes, similar to how I feel about the whore years, I think everyone should have that one relationship where you look back and ask yourself, what the hell was I thinking? You'll learn something and you won't regret it. Unless, of course, that relationship was with someone who had a sizable stash of child porn on his computer. Then, by all means, regret everything. I think that this chapter is fun and relatable until we get to the part where she absolutely shoves the child porn allegations under the rug. I don't think that this is like a fun anecdote. I think it's like a deeply serious and awful thing. I do think that part of it is probably like, what can you say without self-incriminating? I also think that as a woman, you don't want to make your story about somebody else's scandal. Totally. They're reading this with like the eye of a PR person and saying, what will the headlines be? And they don't want this book that is really good and honest and vulnerable and has a lot of interesting gossip in it. They don't want it to be shadowed by being like what Naya Rivera has to say about child porn. Yeah, that makes sense. It was so weird. So then she also goes into the fact that the one reason she doesn't regret the relationship with Mark is because it led her to meet Ryan, who later became her husband. She was so sad about Mark, she ended up going to a thing that she wouldn't have gone to normally. And that's where she spotted Ryan at a bar. She hit on him so hard. She walked up to him and said, I wanted to say congratulations. And he said, on what? And she says, on your incredible bone structure. And he's not interested. She says they talked for a couple hours and his body language never changes. Maybe he was just awkward or something. I don't really understand. You think it's because he didn't know she was famous. Well, she says that his buddy afterwards was like, did you know who that was? That's the girl from Glee. And he was like, oh, I had no idea. And I wonder if he thought he was the famous one. And he was like, some fan was just hitting on him. And then it was like, no, bitch. Nobody knows who Ryan Hollis is. Nobody's to this day ever heard of you. I only know you because I read your wife's book, Former Mr. Naya Rivera. So they hang out for a couple of months. And she says he treated her so psychotically well that she like couldn't take it and she dumped him. So of course I had to break up with him. I had never had a guy treat me so well, so I assumed there had to be something wrong with him, something major that would only come out later. Why else would he want to be with me? I was young and stupid at the time. My role on Glee was just starting to take off. I needed to focus on my career and didn't need any dream killers around to mess it up. I was going to keep it moving. So she calls him up on the phone, breaks up with him, and he says, wow, Naya, you're a fucked up kid, and then hung up. And she says the next day she went into set, and she was like so excited to tell everyone she broke up with this guy, because, you know, they love gossip. They love the drama. So she says when she told everyone they dumped him, everyone was like, why? And she's like, you know, you just dump people. And they're like, well, not, not him. He was really nice. We liked him. And she was like, oh, okay. So then she finds out that she is pregnant with his child, and she is 
so taken aback. She has no idea what to do. She's 23 years old. Like we said, her role is just taking off. Her career is on the absolute upswing. She says she knows immediately the only thing to do is to get an abortion. And at this point, her and her mom are best friends. So her mom takes her. They handle it together. And she has enormous regrets about this situation. And I think that this is a really important and vulnerable thing to write about because we, I feel like, only ever hear two sides of the situation. Mm -hmm. We hear like, I got an abortion. It was the best thing that ever happened for me in my career. Or I didn't get an abortion and I am so happy I didn't. Or like, you know, people who don't believe in abortion, which is like, fuck off. But I think it's really interesting to hear about someone who did choose it for their career and realizes that maybe they didn't have to. I think she was definitely living in the shadow of her mom's personal regret. She says her biggest fear in the world was getting pregnant by accident. She's like, I don't know how it happened. She has a real rant about how safe sex is not like a grade on a test. 95% of the time isn't going to get you an A. It just takes one time. But she also talks a lot about how like difficult it was for her to even get the day and how she had to beg and plead to even get a day off to get her abortion. And the fact that she didn't even have time to sit and think. I don't know. It is like a, a very sad story that she got one day to go and take the abortion pill. She went to a Planned Parenthood in Pasadena, which I was surprised by, to be honest, that she went to a Planned Parenthood. I think a lot of other doctors don't do them anymore. Even in LA? Mm -hmm. So she goes to the Planned Parenthood. She takes the pill. She has to take it at her mom's house. And she says she was bleeding for the next 20 days. And she had to go to work for all of them. She didn't tell Ryan. She kept it to herself for a while. And it was a pain that she kept with her till the day she died. She says that she always thinks back on it and she will always have a lot of regret and a lot of sadness around this situation. The sad thing is that many women who find themselves suddenly facing an unplanned pregnancy will be judged no matter what they decide to do. Young single mom, judged. Abortion, judged. There's no way to win. There's no way to make a decision that feels wholly right. I think every woman should have the right to choose. And it scares me to think of a world where the decision of whether or not to have a child is not her choice to make. I feel like I've found more ways to cope now and I'm as at peace with my decision as I will ever be, but I still wouldn't wish an abortion on anybody ever. So I think that this is a really useful take. She writes, it's not a lighthearted party girl decision where you're just like, oh, I got to get an abortion so I can keep partying. Even the people who don't regret their decision in any way, it sucks. So Supreme Court, if you're listening, I hope you go fuck yourself. <laughs> I mean, she does keep it to herself, but she says that for a long time, she talked about it nonstop. Like everyone she dated after the abortion, she talked about it a lot. It was like a huge part of her personality. I mean, she needed to be in therapy. But she says that after her experience with the therapist during her high school years that did not help with her anorexia, she just like mostly works on it herself. But she says she goes semi-annually to a therapist. What does that do? To just check things up. And I'm like, okay. Not to bring Gwyneth Paltrow up again, but it's very Gwyneth Paltrow's biannual. Twice your cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> I also want to take a time right now because this period ends the end of her money troubles. And I am personally obsessed with the time in a celebrity's life when they're famous and successful or on the path to success, but still broke. <laughs> so she lived with her dad for the first two seasons of Glee. So she was a full-on TV star at this point, living at home with her dad. And she finally realized she needed her own place because her hours were just too crazy to be walking back and forth so quietly. I knew I needed to move out, but there was no way I was going to make the same mistakes again. I convinced a high school friend to move in with me, and we got an 800-square-foot studio apartment in Vineland and Ventura. It was $1,000 a month, so we split the rent and each paid $500. We had two twin beds like a dorm room, which would have been disastrous if I had ever tried to bring guys home. But at this point, dating was the furthest thing from my mind. I'd work, shower, sleep, work, shower, sleep. And whenever I got a free moment, I'd call the credit card agency and see who I needed to write a check out to that week. 
I just think that that's so funny. She was on a TV show. Nannying, sharing a room. I get nannying at the beginning. You don't know how these shows are going to go. Anything could be the royal family. I think she learned and smartened up from that experience at the age of five. She also wasn't even a regular on Glee for the first season. But the fact that it wasn't until season three that she was like, okay, I'm allowed to share a bedroom. (laughs) And my final thing I want to say about money Mm -hmm. she has this whole chapter about her financial journey and it ends with her talking about how far she's come and she's out of debt and obviously she's very successful and she goes my husband Ryan and I each have our own bank accounts which we use for personal and fun purchases and a joint one that we use for bills and everything related to the house that way if I go shopping he knows that I'm not using his money to rip and run through Barney's what money does he have I don't know but she has another sentence about being like I used to like being an equal financial partner in my relationship And possibly even sometimes the breadwinner. And I was like, possibly even sometimes? Who is Ryan? Nobody's heard of him. Her next significant relationship is with the rapper Big Sean. They meet through Twitter. She tweeted about one of his songs. He responds to it. They end up having this flirtation. It moves to text message. And finally, they meet up. And he quite distinctly love bombs the shit out of her. As soon as they meet up, they have a date. Then they spend a night together. Their third date is his birthday party, where she says she shows up being like, all right, how many girls here is he fucking? And he's like, no, you're sitting next to me. You're here as my date. This is my mom. He gets her a Rolex right away. It's like a very textbook love bombing, in my opinion. And she says at the end, I realize now we didn't like each other. We like the excitement of being around each other. And more than that, she points to Big Sean using her for PR. And she's like, you know, at the time, I didn't know what events were his, what events were mine. They were just invitations were rolling in. And of course, we'd go together. I now see they were my events and he was showing up. He wasn't showing up to be supportive. He was showing up to steal the spotlight. She talks about his next relationship with a woman that she gives an alias to, Shmariana Shmande. She talks about that relationship. She says, that's his MO. Flash forward to him on the Grammys red carpet with Shmariana. It was her first time being nominated. And now when she looks back at the pictures of that night, he's going to be in all of them. And they're not even together anymore. If you're really a supportive man, you know when to step aside and let your lady be the center of attention. You don't literally need to stand in front of her to prove that you were there. So their relationship obviously became very toxic. They got engaged after six months. And then she says that he like, basically ghosted her on all wedding-related things. She felt like the engagement was too fast, but she was very caught up in this whirlwind. When he proposed to her, he proposes to her in the middle of the night, and she thought he was joking, and she's like, that's not a funny thing to joke about. She goes into the other room. They get into a fight about it, and finally he's like, no, I meant it. The next morning at breakfast with all of his family, he goes, by the way, we're engaged. And she's like, well, I guess it's official. So she's very caught up in the whirlwind of it. They start planning a wedding. And by they, I mean her. And he doesn't even answer texts about wedding planning. He's so uninvolved that he won't even respond to questions about his own guest list. She's like, I don't know rappers as real names. How can we address the envelopes? Eventually, they get in too many fights about it. And they decide to postpone the wedding. And then they get into a bunch of huge fights, one of which she takes to Twitter. She realizes the Rolex that he'd given her is gone, and she knows he took it back. So she tweets about it. She doesn't write the tweet in the book, but I did look it up, and so I will read it for you guys. She says, At Big Sean, stealing Rolexes from a lady's house now. Maybe because I'm on Glee and making more money or something. Hashtag trifling. So he responds, Not only is the wedding postponed, but it's canceled forever, and their relationship is over. Via PR. He has his publicist put out a statement on his behalf. She says she found out that she got dumped online like everybody else. She looks like the scorned in this relationship. She looks like a crazy person who aired out her grievances online. The press was not in her favor. She says that the rumors were that she was a jealous, vengeful woman, that she was screaming at him, I'm going to ruin your career. 
that she had been the one who couldn't handle the heat of the relationship. And then around this same time, things blow up at work too. So this is the only time that she really throws Leah Michelle under the bus. I think overall, she's pretty cordial about their feud. But at one point, Chris Colfer was given the opportunity to write an episode. She loves Chris. She's so complimentary of him. But when they're doing this episode, there's a lot of animals on set. It's pretty much chaos. And so Leah locks herself in her trailer and refuses to come out. Naya is the only person on set. Everyone else is just all over the place. And the producers just aren't doing anything. And she says, we were shooting a scene in a diner and all the producers and the crew were in a huddle. No one knew what was going on and absolutely nothing was happening. Meanwhile, one of the producers was just perched on a stool at the counter like they were in a real diner and he had just stopped by for a milkshake. When I started on Glee, the producers told us three things. Show up on time, know your lines, and hit your mark. So I listened. I take that kind of stuff seriously. And I know as much as acting is about performing and having a big personality, it's also about doing a good job. So she was on time. She was waiting on set. No one else was there. And so she walks up to the producer and she says, where are the other people in the scene? I asked him, gesturing to all the empty chairs around me. And I added, you're on my mark. If you would kindly get up and handle something, anything, that would be awesome. He lost it. She got screamed at and said, I've been running this show for six years. And she said, yes, poorly. Yikes. So that was like probably not the right thing to say to a boss. I'm not going to deny that she had a point. I think she was fucking right because no one was making the show. It is their job to keep it going and no one was doing that. But I don't think you can say that. So, Well, also, I think clearly the show has been going well until now. And she was having a bad day slash bad year. It got leaked to the press that she'd been fired off of Glee. She was just a diva who's throwing tantrums, which is hilarious because the whole thing happened because Leah Michelle was being a diva and throwing a tantrum. We were talking about this before the podcast. I think Naya Rivera is unfairly colored as the perpetrator in a lot of feuds. I do think she is honest. I was going to say not innocent. I think she is someone who's willing to confront, who will say things. I don't think she's like the worst person that's ever existed. I don't think she is a gentle little lamb. No, she's not a gentle little lamb. But I also think there are certain people that I think people just expect to be a problem. They're like, all right, we've got to keep this one under control. They're going to be annoying all the time. And so as soon as they do one thing, you're like, oh, they're always running their mouth. And you're like, okay, well, they that was the one. It's like the confirmation bias that every time they do it, you're like, see, I told you. And so her and the producer meet up to apologize to each other and she's like well I didn't think it was right that I said one thing and you just told everybody I was fired and he goes that wasn't me and she says people think Leah leaked to the press Naya was getting fired so obviously she wasn't fired she did come back to the show everything was fine and she says that she learned a lot about mellowing out from this experience and she has a really interesting little chunk about gratitude she gets pretty religious at certain points but I think a lot of the overall messages of this are deeply useful. She says it was a wake up call for the past two years. Everything had moved at the speed of light and they were going so well that I forgot that things could get bad. She says, when I prayed, I made it a point to say, thank you for this time because I know that something good is going to come out of it. And I know that I need to calm down right now. When I talk to God now, I try to strip away all the problems and anxieties that I want resolved and instead focus on the bigger underlying issues, like what decisions did I make that led me to this place? I never ask God to fix things for me or to make things go away, only to give me guidance so that I can become a better person and then fix them myself. I am not a God person, so I don't like the God part of it as much, but I think that the overall, just hoping for things to change isn't going to do anything. Hoping to understand what behaviors can help you make your life the life you want 
is so good. So good. So good. So good. <laughs> you know what? I pray or hope or wish to learn more words someday. <laughs> that episode where the big blow up had happened was the second to last of the season. After the season, she takes some time and is like, I need to stop running from my problems. Look inward. And she does. And would you believe it that in this time of looking inward, she finds Ryan. He had reached out to her because of all the big Sean stuff playing out so majorly in the press. He wants to make sure she's okay. There's also the Glee stuff blowing up in the press. And it was like a coincidence. The day before, one of her friends was like, well, whatever happened to Ryan? He was a good guy. You should date him again. And she was like, maybe I should. And then the next day, there it was, the email checking in. They meet up. She is honest with him about the abortion and about the things that happened. And he's so kind to her. He says, I just wish that there was something I could have done different to make you feel like I could have supported you. After that night where she tells him about the abortion, he sleeps over and they're inseparable from then on. She writes about the press around this as well. So she marries Ryan pretty much right away. They get married in secret. It's not in secret from the people in her life, but they kept it a huge secret from the press because she was obviously in a really bad place with the press at this time. I remember absolutely believing the big Sean relationship was fake. I believe her events, but I do think something that she says about the big Sean relationship that is illuminating, I think, to other celebrity relationships is she says, I could see exactly what had driven our relationship and why it hadn't worked. We liked the glitz and the glam that came with being together more than we actually liked each other. When I heard the word engagement, I thought marriage, babies, picket fence, albeit a really, really fancy picket fence. And I guess he was just thinking publicity, publicity, publicity. At the time, I didn't really pick up on this, though, because I was so caught up in it. When you think about somebody like Katie Holmes dating Tom Cruise or all these relationships, when there is that power imbalance, it is exciting to be like a sexy couple that people are excited to see and people are like standing you and people are taking photos and shipping it and all and then you get married and you're like, oh my God, that was a contract. <laughs> yeah, that was a huge mistake. Anyway, so I remember this press happening. And the yes. way it played out in the press is they reported that she got married at the same hotel on the same day that she was supposed to marry Big Sean. That she had kept the same wedding and replaced the groom. And I remember going, okay, I don't think her and Big Sean were real. I think they were a PR thing and that she had this other guy on lock the whole time. And then when the contract was over the Big Sean, she clearly just like, like, she was planning a wedding for somebody. It just wasn't who she said she was in the press. Yeah, and I do think that we were all wrong. Yeah, I think what she said was right, even though I still don't think that any of these are normal, healthy relationships that would have existed outside of a celebrity reality. Totally, but I do think that she thought her relationship with Big Sean was real, and I think that her relationship with Ryan was what she thought was a real, healthy relationship. So they fall in love in the span of a few months and decide to get married right away. She doesn't say they didn't get married on the exact same day. She says, I was supposed to marry Big Sean in Santa Barbara. Me and Ryan got married in Mexico. I was supposed to use a Carolina Herrera dress to marry Big Sean. I used a Monique Lulier one to marry Ryan. And she goes, we didn't get married on the same day of the Big Sean wedding. We got married on Ryan's birthday. So she was planning to marry Big Sean on Ryan's birthday. That's what it sounds like. Okay. <laughs> I guess all of her friends had that saved the day anyway. They get married. They have a baby. She loves her baby so fucking much. It is really heartbreaking. This book came out before her relationship with Ryan deteriorated. I mean, I looked on Wikipedia and they had joint custody. I mean, I can see why it went badly, though. Everything she says about Big Sean, she says in her sorries and sorry, not sorry. She goes, sorry for falling in love with the idea of a person instead of the actual person. And I think that that's what happened with Ryan. I think in the wake of the Big Sean fallout, she wanted to go back to the thing that was good and real and just lock something down. I mean, I think she was searching for calmness in the craziness of her life. I just like don't know why celebrities can't just date a bit more. You don't have to get married. You keep dating. They always forget. One of the last chapters in this book is the kind of chapter that I have absolutely railed against in past memoirs. It's like a these are my friends chapter. 
And she just talks about what friendship means to her and the people who have stuck by her side and the people who haven't. But I think the way she writes about it is really interesting. And I don't actually begrudge her for including this. So she writes a little ode to her best pal, who's been her best friend since like second grade, and how she's there for her through everything, through birds eating Mark Sagling's car, through coming to visit her at Hooters. It's very sweet. Then she writes a little section about Leah Michelle called From One Bitch to Another. And this is the really interesting part where she does not throw Leah Michelle under the bus. She says they're very core. It turns out we're too different to really get along. And I think that she got branded as the absolute bitch from Glee because she has called out Leah Michelle in public before. And it bums me out that I think that that significantly affected her career. Did the reckoning of Leah Michelle happen before or after the death of Naya Rivera? Do you know? It happened like a month before her death. I wonder if this book had come out after that reckoning, if there would have been more examples given. Because I do think, as an adult woman, she was like, look, I'm not here to shit on people. I'm not going to share celeb stories about my coworker. But I also do wonder if there was a little bit of fear, even though she seems pretty fearless, but they are your coworkers. You don't want to burn that bridge. I actually don't think that she and Leah had a significant Leah versus Naya feud. I think it was Leah versus the cast and Naya was the face of it because she wasn't afraid to speak out for a long time until the reckoning. Naya was the only one who'd ever kind of shit talked Leah in public. So it was blown up as this huge thing but I think that she just casually didn't like her nobody liked Leah but but Naya was viewed as being her foil I mean people love when real life parallels the TV I mean look at Lady Gaga she's really drilling down in that fact and now I think people are getting a bit sick of it with Lady Gaga to be honest but that's neither here nor there what's important is I do think one because of the casting and then two because I'm sure and she prides herself on this. She stands up for herself in the moment. We didn't tell this story, but there is an instance where she has sex with this coworker at Abercrombie. She later finds out that he has a wife. She calls the wife and tells the wife. The wife screams at her. Naya and hangs up and goes, you're ungrateful. And then the next day sends her flowers. And is like, well, I don't want her to be mad at me. And I do relate to Naya. I don't have that problem where I'm like, oh, I thought of the perfect thing to say later. I think of it now. And then the next day I'm like, oh, should I have said that though? And I think Naya has a bit of that. So I think it's somebody who stands up for herself and is happy to speak in the moment against things she disagrees with. She became the lightning rod for the Leah hate that everybody felt. Yes, I agree with that. So it is a shame because I do think it affected her career quite significantly. I think that like Ryan Murphy kind of had to choose Leah or Naya. And I think he chose Leah. And I think that that was the wrong one because Leah seems like a real fucking wretched bitch. And Naya seems like a sweetheart with jagged edges. Yes, I agree. The final chapter of this book is really just like a sum up of... It's kind of her forgiving, moving on, coming to terms. Her and her mom are close as ever. Her mom was there for her abortion and they are like best friends. They talk on the phone every day. At yeah. this point, she's very happy with Ryan. She has her son, Josie, who is the light of her life. She says she's as close as she can ever be, she thinks, to forgiving but not forgetting the abortion she had. I remind myself every day that I may be sorry I did certain things and sorry about the consequences I faced because of them. I may be sorry because I owe someone an apology, but I'm definitely not sorry that everything happened the way it did. I wouldn't take any of it back because if I did, I wouldn't be where I am now and I wouldn't have any good stories to tell. So when life gives me lemons... I say, fuck it and drink champagne. It was like a beautiful paragraph capped off by a super hack sentence. <laughs> final thoughts about Naya Rivera. My final thoughts about Naya Rivera, I want to get into a little bit harder on the Patreon, but I really think the entertainment industry did her fucking dirty. I think that she is the definition of gone too soon. It makes me really sad that we weren't able to give her the credit she deserved while she was still alive. And I think she's very talented and her premature death is devastating. 
What are your thoughts? I felt the same way. I thought this was like actually a great book. I think she passionately went into her opinions and she says things that not everyone's going to agree with. It was very honest and vulnerable and relatable and she seemed funny and not perfect. And I also am very sad about it. I'm glad that it seems clear that her talent stuck out and her drive stuck out and she was able to create Santana from nothing. I'm excited that she was recognized in the time she was given. Me too. We always talk about this, like which memoirists would we want to hang with? Yeah. After reading this book, I'm like, she would be a fun fucking time. I would have loved to be on the set of Glee with them. Yeah. It seemed so fun. They just seemed like the, the best gang. I just feel like going to a party with her would be amazing. I feel like waking up hungover with her the next day would be fun. Oh my like, God. I feel like she'd be a fun, like we're in bed feeling like shit, eating bagels and just rehashing last night and regretting everything and drinking water. Yes. Like I'd love to go to a CVS with her and get a Gatorade looking like ass. <laughs> Me too. You guys, this week on the Patreon, we're going to get into all the celeb stories that we had to leave out. We're talking Michael Jackson, Nicole Richie, Vanessa Hudgens. Tia and Tamara Mowry. A ton of things. We're going to get into Glee blind items. We're going to get into a whole Glee deep dive. The things that annoy me about the way people talked about her death. We're going to get into a Naya Rivera Glee deep dive. I might just talk shit about Leah Michelle for 20 minutes straight. It could happen. We love you so much. Thank you so much for listening. As always, check out the merch. Check out the Patreon. Check out our weekly show. We are working on bringing not just live shows around the country nationally, but in February, we will have our first live digital show we are going to do three shows that target us europe and australia so everyone has a chance to participate we are working as hard as we can on that we're open to any and all feedback reach out to us dm us follow us everywhere we love you guys so much and ashley who do we love the most we love our five-star reviewers so much i want to kiss you on the head Thank you to our gorgeous five-star reviewers this week. Eb, feb, feb, a short but mighty month. Thank you to Arika Love. I friggin' love you too. Thanks to Aisha Gandhi. Thank you for bringing me this piece. Thanks to Carolyn Gales. May you have many beautiful boat trips. Thank you to RJ Amort. That's Amorte. Thank you, JT Hunko. You'll always be the number one Hunko to me. Thank you to Aaliyah Renee. I appreciate the whip and the nene. Thank you to Kara Starr for absolutely being the star of this review. Thank you, Anti-Girl. Well, I personally am pretty pro-girl, but I'm also a pro the album Anti-Girl. So I think that that's where we're on the same page. Thank you to Sideshow Princess. I can't wait to see the show. Thank you, DCCS9996. That sounds government-y. Happy to have you on our side, just in case. Thank you to Katie Marie D. I appreciate the D. Thanks to 143 Cody Smiley Face. I hope you stay smiley face forever. Thank you to Donip0421, one better than 420. Thank you to Christine Lee614, one better than the Olsen Twins' birthday. Thank you to Yolanda's Coffee Colonic Worm. My God, I don't think that you exist, but if you do, I'm happy you left this review. Thank you, Jessica G511. I appreciate you giving us the 511. Thank you, Kenda48. You are more beautiful than a Kendall to me. Thank you to our viewers this week. I love you so, so much. And I can't wait to talk to you next week. <laughs>